0: Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Dr. Chris Seaman in part of his seven-week presentation, Matthew and Luke on Jesus, part of the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy. Today's show is part one of week three, titled, Sermons. Recorded in February 2013. And now, Dr. Chris Seaman.
1: Okay, so welcome back. This is the third of our series on Matthew and Luke, on Jesus. We began by looking at Matthew and Luke's birth stories. And uh, these, of course, are stories that do not appear in Mark's Gospel, Last time we looked at the baptism of Jesus. We looked at how Mark portrayed that, and then how Matthew and Luke adorn that portrayal, uh, develop it in order to highlight some of the things that are important to their understandings of Jesus. We ended that discussion with the uh, with the inauguration of Jesus's ministry. Uh, he comes out of the wilderness. And proclaims, the kingdom of God has drawn near, repent and believe in the good news. And in Luke's gospel, he follows it up with a visit to Jesus' hometown, where Jesus quite explicitly identifies his mission as the mission of a prophet. And so, the kingdom of God has an explicitly prophetic meaning to it. And Jesus goes ahead and quotes from the book of Isaiah about what it means for his mission, his message of the kingdom to be a prophetic mission. And um, if any of you were here last night in Barrett for Dr. Joe Torma's uh, talk on the prophets, uh, you know what Jesus how Jesus defined the prophetic vocation, one who proclaims good news to the poor, um, healing to those who are ill, Uh, liberation for the oppressed and those who suffer unjustly. Um, So this is how Luke uh, presents Jesus as bringing forth a prophetic message. Uh, In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus too comes forward and proclaims that the kingdom uh, is at hand. Uh, But Matthew, rather than having him visit his hometown for a quick uh, uh, little stint with his, uh, his relatives, Uh, he immediately gives us a summary of what Jesus does. And if you remember in Matthew's um, baptism and testing story, it's right after Jesus' baptism and the heavenly voice declaring him, this is my son, that we get that genealogy of Jesus that makes it quite clear how Matthew understands Uh, that term son of, I'm sorry, we're talking about Luke's gospel still. Luke has that genealogy there, uh, right after Jesus' baptism, that identifies what it means to call Jesus son of God. Uh, And although Matthew doesn't have that genealogy, he too makes Jesus' testing, if you are the son of God, then act accordingly. And so we have the various tests which Jesus passes by quoting from the Torah, from the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, So in his tests, he fulfills the book of Deuteronomy, fulfills the commandments. Uh, And then when he enters into his uh, ministry, we get this very little summary of what he does, just a few sentences. He heals a lot of people, he casts out a lot of demons, he does a lot of amazing stuff. Then right after that little summary of Jesus' ministry, which is basically Matthew compressing the first three chapters of Mark's gospel into a soundbite, we get the Sermon on the Mount, three chapters of Jesus' teaching. And in Luke, after Jesus gives his mini-sermon at Nazareth and is almost killed for it, uh, he then goes on and performs a variety of actions which illustrate what he just said his mission was. He heals people, he liberates them from demonic oppression, um, he, uh, he helps people. But after that short um, sort of montage of scenes of Jesus doing things for people, he too settles down in the middle of chapter 6 of Luke's gospel, and he delivers a sermon. It's not on a mountain this time, it's on a flat place. The Sermon on the Plain, as it's called. And this is our topic for tonight, Jesus' sermons. Now, Mark's Jesus doesn't talk a lot. He mainly acts. There are times when he talks, but it's generally in very specific places, and it doesn't last quite as long as uh, as in Matthew and Luke, which is why Matthew and Luke are are between, well, let's see, Mark ends with a few verses in chapter 16. Luke ends in a chapter 24, so that's 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 20. Luke adds nine chapters to Mark. Matthew adds 25, 26, 27, 28. Um, 13 chapters, and most of those editions is Jesus talking. Now, there are two ways that Jesus talks. One of the ways is that he delivers long, sometimes long, discourses, sermons. The other way that Jesus teaches, uh, just, just to let you all know, this he just came in, we have some handouts over there at that table if you want them. The second thing Jesus, the second way Jesus talks is he talks in parables. And there are more parables in Matthew and Luke than in Mark. In Mark, Jesus really only has two parables, and they serve a very specific purpose. Uh, Matthew has a lot of parables, Luke has more parables. So this week and next week, in our visiting of the highlights of Matthew and Luke's understanding of Jesus, we're going to look at Jesus' teaching. Today we're looking at these two inaugural sermons and next time we look at the parables. And one of the things I'm going to try to leave us with today is that the sermons, the content of these sermons, the way they're arranged and presented are consistent with the emphases and the themes of the parables of Jesus that are unique to Matthew on the one hand and those that are unique to Luke. For example just to spill the beans. The main point of Jesus' sermon on the plain in Luke's Gospel, in Luke chapter 6, in addition to the broad goal of identifying what does a prophet do, the main message is mercy. Be merciful as God is merciful. That's what a prophet is, someone who... Who images God's mercy to the world. And guess what? All ten of Luke's unique parables are about. They're about mercy, either God's mercy for us or us imaging mercy towards one another. So, in other words, there's a consistency between what Jesus says when he's discoursing. And what Jesus says in his parables. And we'll see the same thing is true of Matthew, again to spill the beans. One of the main ways that you can sum up the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew's sermon, uh, is God's judgment. How does God judge people? How does God evaluate, assess people and their actions? So the judgment of God is a central issue in Matthew's inaugural sermon. And guess what? All of Matthew's unique parables are about judgment. So there's going to be a connection with what we talk about today and what we talk about next week. But let's take a step back. So in both cases, with the birth stories and the baptism story, each evangelist uses that material, whether... Whether he brings it as his own contribution to the story or whether he derives it from Mark and does things with Mark, regardless of what they do, the birth stories, the baptism stories are preparing us for Jesus' one-liner, the kingdom of God has drawn near, repent and believe in the gospel. But what does that mean? What does this core of Jesus' message mean? What does it mean, the kingdom of God has drawn near. And what does it mean to repent? What should we do? Well, you remember in Luke's gospel, when the crowds ask John, after he scares them half to death by calling them brood of vipers, uh, they say, what should we do? And John the Baptist gives them responses. He says, uh, show mercy to one another, don't extort one another, don't abuse one another. Good prophetic social justice types teaching. Um, But what does the kingdom of God look like? In the Catholic tradition we put a great deal of emphasis on what is called the sacramental principle, which is a highfalutin way of saying making things visible. So if Jesus says the kingdom of God is here or coming or near, how does he make that visible? Well, we have all the stories of the wonderful, wonderful things he does, but for Matthew and Luke, those things are not enough to clarify what the kingdom of God is, what it looks like. For them, they have to insert these, uh, these weighty sermons. And the fact that they put these sermons right up front, you know, for Matthew, squishes the first three chapters of Mark into two verses and then has the big sermon on that for three chapters. Uh, for Luke, we have Jesus using his actions to illustrate His vocation as a prophet in the Nazareth sermon, but then he comes to the big sermon, the Sermon on the Plain, and he has to tell his followers, his disciples, those who would be his disciples, how do they participate in this? How do they make visible the kingdom? So that's the issue here. We're not going to be able to cover every detail of these profound teachings, Uh, we wouldn't have time, but We have to get the point. The reason why they're here, where they are, is because they clarify, uh, they attempt to describe what the kingdom of God looks like. So they they try to make visible in words what it looks like, just as Jesus, through his actions, tries to make it visible. And more than that, uh, it's not just Jesus giving an exposition of what he's doing. He's challenging everyone who hears him to do the same. So the sermons are really about us, the us being whoever hears them. So what I want to do tonight is begin with Luke's Sermon on the Plain, which is the shorter of the two. It's about 30 verses. And examine how it's arranged, what its contents are. And then we're going to look at Matthew's. And we're going to do the same thing we've been doing In the previous two talks, we're going to try to link the distinctive qualities of these two sermons to what we already know or are beginning to discern are the main ideas in these Gospels. So let's take the Sermon on the Plain first. So I gave you a handout of the so-called Beatitudes. So if you can take a look at that, these are what Jesus opens both sermons with. The Beatitudes, blessed are you in Luke, blessed are they in Matthew. Now, actually, the, the word in Greek is not blessed, eulogetos. It's makarios, which means happy or fortunate. Um, but it, blessing will do. Um, the main thing to, to recognize is that however you translate that word, it what Jesus is saying in a kind of, if you, if you retroject this back into a Semitic language, which of course Jesus is speaking and he's speaking in Aramaic, if you retroject this back into Aramaic, uh, the construction, the grammatical construction you probably get with these beatitudes, these blesseds, is what's called a divine passive. In other words, you are blessed. Well, blessed by who? If there's no subject that's blessing you, that's expressed in the sentence, it's usually understood that God is the subject, the unnamed subject. So when Jesus says, uh, blessed are you who are poor, he's saying God has blessed you if you are poor. When he says, blessed are you who weep, God has blessed those who weep. That's what he means by that. So he's not giving a blessing to them. He's declaring what is true. He's declaring how God relates to these groups of people. Now, if you look at this comparison of Matthew and Luke's Beatitudes, uh, what do you notice? What's the first thing you notice about them? What's different about them? Luke Luke has only three sort of distinct blessings, followed by a summing up, the same one Matthew has, whereas Matthew has a whole bunch of them. So Luke's, um, now that doesn't mean that, that all the things that Matthew has in here that Luke doesn't aren't in Luke somewhere. Some of these are unique to Matthew, but they don't occur here in the Beatitudes. So Luke has a very, what we would call a primitive version of the Beatitudes. Matthew has a much more developed version, and probably these differences relate to the author's uh, goals, and we'll talk about that. But let's look at, at Luke's Beatitudes. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Indeed, good news for the poor, right? Going right back to chapter 4 at the Nazareth Sermon, this is what I've come to do, he says, this is what I've been appointed for. So the content of these beatitudes are quite consistent with Jesus' declaration of who he is and what he's come to do. Uh, on the other side, which is something I didn't include in this, this uh, profiling of it, uh, you have three woes, <laughs> three, uh, three uh, negative statements. Um, Woe to you who are rich. For you've already received your consolation. Woe to you who laugh now, for you're not going to be laughing when things get turned upside down. Uh, woe to you uh, who are filled, because you are going to go hungry. So, if you were at Dr. Torma's talk last night, he made the, big, the point that, uh, that no prophet's message is good news to everyone. But what, makes, what puts people on different sides of this fence, as it were? It's not just, um, well, presumably, if if you're poor, you don't have a choice in it. If you're weeping, you're weeping because something's happened to you that you have no control over, perhaps. If you're hungry, presumably, it's because you can't get food to eat. Um, The implication is that those who have wealth, who are happy about this, they're laughing about this now, who are filled with their possessions, they're going to be the losers in the coming judgment that's going to happen, which is, in a sense, the kingdom. But uh, why, are the, why are the people who, who have wealth, uh, who are filled now, who are not weeping now, why are they uh, bad? Why are they not blessed? Um, you know, we have a lot of parables that deal with this in Luke, like the parable of Lazarus and the rich guy. We'll talk about that next time. But the key, I think, comes in the final statements on this, par- this uh, parallel here, where Jesus says, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, revile you, defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. So here we come back, circling back to Luke's theme of Jesus as a prophet, and now... Jesus, in a sense, saying, if you, if you are in these categories, you're, you, what you experience, hatred, exclusion, revilement, de- defamation, on account of the Son of Man, because I stand up for these groups of people, if you share in the opposition I receive, then, be, then rejoice, because that means you too are standing in line, at least, with the prophets, which is what I am, right? And if he were to read on in Luke with the woes, the reason why the woe people are woeing is because everyone loves them, (laughs) because that's the way the people treated the false prophets of old. So really what we're dealing with here is the prophetic message again. The prophetic message is good news for some, but not for others. And the others, uh, they, uh, they would rather hear false prophets give them messages of consolation and it's all going to be fine. It's, isn't it great? You know, God, uh, when, you're, when you have wealth, it means God is blessing you. Uh, you know, th- th- Luke divides the world into the haves and the have-nots, and he implies that that unjust situation is a result of human will. And that's why those who have in this age are going to be uh, going to wake up the next day and not be so happy. So again, it's bad news to them. Uh, so Luke's message, he begins his sermon with a clear-cut division between those who are blessed and those who are not, those who are blessed and those who will lose out because they don't respond to his prophetic message. Okay, now let's talk a bit about the rest of the Sermon on the Plain. It's very simple. The structure of the Sermon on the Plain is very simple. It has three parts. The first is this declaration of who's who. The second part is, which is on your second handout here, is the command to love your enemies. And we're going to talk about this in some detail in a moment, but I have a little diagram of this section. This is the center of his sermon. And then after it, you basically get not a series of parables, but a series of warnings, Um, warnings to disciples to be like their master. If you're not like your master, who is a prophet and who is reviled for being a prophet, if you're not reviled too for my name's sake, then you're not doing your job. You're not being my disciples. You're not bearing fruit. So, there's a series of images about warning people to follow what he's saying here. But the message is terribly simple. There's simply a statement of fact. There's an unjust reality that the prophet comes to condemn. The role of the prophet, then, is not to respond to this reviling, this defamation, this opposition that he or she receives uh, by retaliation, by fighting back, but rather through what we call love of enemies, non-retaliation. Now, what I want to do is have you take a look at this picture that I made here. Because when you read all of these sayings of Jesus that have to do with the theme of non-violence or non-retaliation, it's easy to sort of, um, to allow them to become white noise. We're so used to hearing them that we don't hear them. And one of the ways we can help hear them more clearly is if we observe that the way Luke has arranged them is very deliberate. Uh, what we have here is what's called a chiastic arrangement. Uh, chiasm is literally um, the letter chi in Greek, which looks like the letter X for us. Uh, and the idea is that you have four points on the letter X, right? Four points on this letter. And... Um, you assign, le- you assign letters to each of these points. A and B become B and A. They get reversed. So it's like a mirror image. And a complex chiasm, which was what we have here, is where you have parallel sayings or sayings that Luke wants us to understand in relationship to each other are sort of set up so that they mirror each other. So you really have five points that, Luke, that, that Luke's Jesus makes here. A, B, C, D, and E. And then you have a mirroring corresponding set of statements, uh, E, D, C, B, A, on the other side. What I want us to do is begin and go through these. Let's begin with the center of this chiasm. So if you read Luke's teaching this way, Luke's uh, arrangement of Jesus' sayings this way, this is what Luke says is at the core. This is the principle. Verses 23, or 32 through 35, rather. This is what I've designated as E and E prime. So let's read through this. If you love those who love you, what credit is it to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. If you lend to those whom you hope to receive from, what credit is it to you? Even sinners lend to sinners and receive as much again. So a description of various behaviors, which are basically egocentric. Right? This is basically you, 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 do, uh, you, you do to others so that you will receive back exactly the same. Right? But then we have the contrasting teaching. Don't be like that. That's what sinners do. Rather love your enemies, do good, lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great. You will be children of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. He's kind to everyone, in other words. So notice what you have here. Jesus describes on the one side of the mirror, this is how sinners behave. And then he says on the other side of the mirror, this is how you must behave if you want to be a prophet like me. Why? Not to expect anything in return, but because that's, when you do that, you're mirroring God. If you, if you love your enemies, if you do these things, you will be children of the Most High. So you will be like God, for God is kind to everybody, irregardless of what returns he may get from that kindness. So what we'll see is on the first side of our mirror, all these points will in some way relate to a description of of human behavior. And on the other side, mostly, we will have descriptions of God's nature, as merciful, as loving, as kind, Jesus says, to be a prophet, to be among the blessed, you must image God. You must image God's mercy to others. That's what makes you a prophet. When you image God's mercy in these various circumstances, that's what makes you a prophet like me. When you don't, then you're like all the other sinners. Notice that these sinners that he describes here, they're not committing any they're not committing any sins here, right? If they loving their own, uh, doing good to those who do good to them, those aren't, they're not committing any crimes. But they're only doing that. That's the crime. It's that sin of omission, right? That's what's missing. That's what makes it not like, what makes them not like God. Okay, so if that's the core of the message. Let's move out to the next bit of the comparison, what we call D. So, verse 31. Do to others as you would have them do to you? Well, what does that mean? Luke helps us grasp what Jesus means and doesn't mean by that by pairing it up with another statement. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. So if I hear do unto others as uh, you would have them do to you, okay, well, I could make that mean whatever I want if there's no control on that teaching. The control is the mirror, be merciful like God.
0: Due to time constraints, today's talk will continue next week at the same time. For more information about the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy, log on to walsh.edu. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.